This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. I want to take a minute to talk to you about Best Fiends. With so much going on these days, Best Fiends has really become my go-to when I want to relax and unwind, and also have some fun playing with friends and family. And it's become a cool challenge for us seeing who can level up the fastest and collect the most characters. Best Fiends is free to download, and it will never feel like it's getting old because there are literally thousands of levels and new in-game challenges added every month, so it stays fresh. And for all of you out there into solving puzzles and flexing those brain muscles, then you definitely won't be disappointed. It's just a relaxing way to have some fun. With over 100 million downloads and a 5-star rating, it's no wonder Best Fiends has become so popular. Best Fiends has created a whole entire world on your mobile device, and with so many cool levels, the game just keeps on getting better the further along you get. And for those times you don't have Wi-Fi, don't worry about it. You can play the game without Wi-Fi, which comes in handy. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The following podcast is intended for educational purposes. Listener discretion is advised. Secret FBI memos made public today show that the late J. Edgar Hoover ordered a nationwide campaign to disrupt the activities of the new left without telling any of his superiors about it. Many of the techniques were clearly illegal. Burglaries, forged blackmail letters, and threats of violence were used. Revelations about the government monitoring phone records and emails renewed questions about the balance between privacy In many minds, the fact that a government would be spying and conducting secret tests on its own citizens was just too hard to comprehend. And that's exactly why the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI was created. The whispers and rumors concerning these insidious programs had left a mark on the Bureau, but there were still so many who refused to believe that their own government would ever do such a thing. The group knew this, and they knew they needed hard evidence proof in agents' own handwriting of the existence of these programs and the implications they presented. And, on March 8, 1971, they got their chance. As the world tuned in to watch Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier beat on each other for over 15 rounds in what would come to be known as the fight of the century, the group took a lockpick and crowbar and broke into an FBI office in Philadelphia, filling briefcases with nearly every single document inside. The group originally nine before one member dropped out, knew that it would be too risky to break into the FBI office in downtown Philadelphia. The security was too tight. So, they settled on the Bureau's satellite office in an apartment building across the street from the county courthouse. They knew when people came home, and they knew when they left. They drove by the building every hour of every day, studying the habits of everybody inside. But it wasn't until one member of the group went undercover in the weeks before the theft posing as a college student researching job opportunities for women in the FBI, that the group was confident there was no security, and that this was the place. The only question was, what documents would they find inside? And most of all, would it help their cause? But in the end, they wouldn't be disappointed. The group was never caught, and stolen documents would soon be mailed anonymously to media outlets around the world. The Washington Post was the first media outlet to report the story. Running a front-page story on March 24, 1971, other media organizations followed suit. The information released to the public was shocking, but it was only the beginning. The trail of breadcrumbs were just being laid out and soon enough, the whole crazy truth would be revealed. This is Manson, The Experiment. I'm your host, Garrett 
and this is episode three. I know Charlie, I know him inside now. Yeah, I became Charlie. Everything I was was Charlie. There's nothing left of me anymore. All the people that are there, there's nothing left of them They're all Charlie Charlie too. It didn't take long for Charles Manson to find a spot to crash, and a woman who would, in the end, go to great lengths to prove her devotion. Although at first the relationship was innocent enough, with Mary waking each morning to go to work, and Manson bouncing between campuses, playing his guitar, and luring young girls into his web of deception, and eventually, when he could, brought them back to Mary's apartment. Although she didn't make a big deal about it, she would frequently be concerned about the age of some of these girls and would ask Charlie what he was doing without pressuring him or making him feel as if he was overstepping his welcome. It was a strange setup, and within the first days of Manson living with Mary, he had collected what little belongings he had, the few possessions he could call his own, and he brought them all to the apartment. Mary didn't seem to mind, but he could tell things between the two of them were becoming more and more invested. One day Manson was on the streets walking through the height when he caught the eye of a young girl walking alone with that same look on her face that he'd become used to seeing among the young people that were arriving in the height daily. She was alone, without a place to go, and he could relate. Before Manson was able to strike up a conversation though, a man approached the girl, grabbing her arm and telling her he could be her man, and she should be his girl. He had a place for her, and he can keep her safe from the creeps. What seemed innocent enough at first, soon turned into an aggressive confrontation. Hey man, what are you doing with my sister? Manson screamed out. The look on both their faces was one of confusion. The man coming to terms with the fact that this young girl wouldn't be going home with them, and the young girl, wondering who this guy was. Mary, where have you been? I've been waiting around here for over an hour. Using the only woman's name he had on top of his head, he diffused the situation and the young girl eventually went with Manson back to Mary's apartment. The two became somewhat of lovers over the next few days. Mary questioned Manson about the girl's seemingly young age, but he assured her that all was well and she was willing and of legal age. Things carried on like this for a little while, Mary waking up to go to work, and Manson waking up late in the day, making love to his new young girlfriend, and heading out to the campuses to play a few tunes and see who he could meet. Until one day, Manson arrived back to the apartment earlier than usual and heard what sounded like a couple people having sex in his bedroom. As he sat on the couch listening to the beginning, middle, and end of what was happening in the next room, he felt strangely cool with it all. Ten years ago he would have barged in and probably killed both of them, but instead, he just sat and waited. Eventually the door opened and Manson's girlfriend and a strange man who he'd never seen before emerged, dripping with sweat and laughing. When they saw Manson they were taken back and both of them sat there, not knowing what to do. Hi, the man said as he put on his shoes and quickly left the place. I'm so sorry, Charlie. Never again. I'm sorry. Manson looked at this girl, someone he'd begun to trust. He'd let his guard down. But this was a new Charlie, and he was still only writing the blueprint, the spirit, of what would eventually become the Manson family. With a laugh and a joke, Manson smiled, stretched out his hands and looked at this girl, someone he'd just rescued from the streets, from her own fears, from the realities of life, and as he looked her in the eyes, he told her, Look, it's fine. You don't belong to anybody. I don't belong to you, and you don't belong to me. Soon enough, Manson's girlfriend was history, and one night, after weeks of building up, Manson finally managed to seduce Mary. And not long after, 
Mary Brunner would quit her job as a librarian and join Manson on his journey from broken-down ex-con to the infamous criminal we know him as today. And she wouldn't be the last. As Manson bounced around San Francisco, enjoying the scene, the culture, and taking advantage of everything it had to offer, he slowly began to attract wayward young women and men, and they fell into his fold. Frequently, they would visit the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic, where Manson would meet with his parole officer, Roger Smith, in addition to frequent STD treatments for him and the group of strange, dead-eyed young women who would accompany him, usually without speaking and acting upon command. It was a strange scene, but they fit right in. The Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic was a place filled with strange, freaked-out and high-strung young people who would, most often than not, pass through while high on LSD and a variety of other different drugs. Usually this kind of behavior would have been frowned upon, and, most likely than not, most of it would have been considered illegal. But, the Haight-Ashbury Clinic almost encouraged it. Although it seemed like the clinic was always at the fringe of going under, with his hard-worked volunteers and tight budgets. But, was that the whole story? Well, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Bouncing between Mary's apartment and wherever the wind would take him, Manson found himself enjoying the world and found plenty of willing young women to keep him company. This was 1967, and picking up a hitchhiking hippie was considered somewhat of a thrill for middle-class America. These people were strange, exotic, and peaceful. But that image would soon change. It wasn't unusual for Manson to be headed back to Mary's apartment in Berkeley after a day of strumming his guitar and meeting new people, only to end up in Sacramento, Reno, or wherever else his ride might suggest. For Manson, every day was a new adventure, and every day was a day wasted until he finally reached his goal of recording his music and inspiring the masses. But that time would have to wait. One day he was headed south when a heavyset, balding guy pulled over and told him to hop in the truck. Within minutes, Manson could tell this man was some kind of religious fanatic when he leaned over and whispered to Manson that he could save his soul. It was a kind offer, Manson thought, and soon enough the man was also inviting him into his home to have dinner. It was almost sunset when they arrived in San Jose, and after a nice home-cooked meal, Manson and the man began talking about the Bible and exchanging philosophies. Sitting there listening to this guy rap his prayers and ideas, Manson looked over and noticed an old piano up against the wall. With a couple of words and a smile, the man agreed to give Manson the piano and invited him back any time to pick it up. But it wasn't just the piano Manson was interested in. He had another reason for returning. Dean's young daughter. Her name was Ruth Ann Morehouse, and her father, Dean Morehouse, had just unknowingly introduced Manson to his next project. As the weeks passed by, Dean's house became another one of Manson's crash pads, and he found himself visiting Dean more and more and enjoyed their conversations. But most of all, he enjoyed seeing Ruth Ann. And soon, over time, he could feel the sexual tension between them growing stronger and stronger. Even better, one day while visiting Dean, Manson noticed an old Volkswagen bus sitting in the driveway of a house a few doors down the road. He had only $25 to his name, but he wanted that bus and nothing would stop him from making it happen. If Manson had learned anything, it's that with a few kind words and the right approach, he could do anything. He could get anything. Sure enough, Manson knocked on the door, and within 20 minutes, he was rolling the old piano Dean had given him for free 
over to the driveway where the owner handed over the keys in exchange for the instrument. Charles Manson had not only secured four wheels and a place to crash, but he now had a home that would support his lifestyle and a web to lure in young women and begin to assemble his family. There's not much known about the experiments and tests that went on at the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic under the supervision of Jolly West. Given his history, though, one can only assume the test subjects endured some sort of psychological torment. Whether this was induced or just observed remains unknown. But Jolly West's presence at the clinic during the summer of 1967 was seemingly welcomed by David Smith, the clinic's founder, who was well aware of West's history and his motives. But the injection of funds provided by West helped the clinic remain open and kept the steady flow of young, drugged-out hippies. I could only imagine what that scene looked like. This small, crowded, colorful clinic filled with the rank smell of hundreds of unwashed hippies going in and out of exam rooms, and, once in a while, entering one of the small offices in the clinic, the stream almost never-ending. Jolly West had inserted himself into the epicenter of the movement he aimed to examine and ultimately discredit. But the question of whether or not Jolly West could have crossed paths with Manson is still one of debate, although it would almost seem hard not to have rubbed shoulders during that summer, seeing as how Manson's parole officer, Roger Smith, had an office in the clinic as well, where he would regularly meet with Manson. By all accounts, Jolly West played the part well, and he fit right into the height. Nobody ever would have suspected that this happy-go-lucky, funky-looking doctor could have been hiding a trail of death and destruction that spanned over a decade. It's been said that to understand the future, you first have to study the past. And when it comes to Jolly West, that past starts on July 4th, 1954, in San Antonio, Texas. On that night, a three-year-old girl would go missing, and a married, 29-year-old airman with no criminal history would confess to the crime. But not before Jolly West would insert himself into the mystery. On July 4th, 1954, just after midnight, a three-year-old girl vanished from the outside of Lackland Air Base. She'd been playing in the parking lot with her brother while her parents stepped inside of a bar to have a quick drink, and when they came back, she was gone. Almost immediately, they formed a search party. It didn't take long before the members of the search party found a car on the side of the road with the young girl's underwear hanging from the door. Then, from the darkness, a man wandered towards the search team, covered in blood and scratches in what they would later describe as a daze-like state. What's going on here? He asked the search party. The group noted he didn't seem drunk, nor could he remember how he'd gotten there or what had happened. Soon enough, the search party found the young girl in a nearby gravel pit. Her neck had been broken, and she'd been sexually assaulted. At that point, they placed the man under arrest. His name was Jimmy Shaver. He was 29 years old, recently married, and had two kids. No history of violence or criminal behavior. Earlier that night, Shaver was at the same bar that the young girl would vanish from with a friend, who would later recall that Shaver wasn't drunk, but that he did seem like he was a little bit off, out of it, maybe high on something. As deputies led Shaver to the patrol car to take him to the county jailhouse, a constable from another precinct showed up with orders from military police to take custody of him. Hours after his arrest, an Air Force Marshal questioned Shaver while doctors examined him. All noted that he wasn't drunk, but rather unusually composed considering the situation he was in. After the interrogation, they released him to the county jailhouse, and he was booked for the rape and murder of the young girl. 
When his wife arrived later that day, Shaver didn't even recognize her. He told officers he had no idea what happened to the young girl, and when pressed further, he could only envision a blonde man with tattoos. And for the next couple of months, Shaver would still have no memory of the events, but thought he must have done it. He had to have done it, but he couldn't remember. He would just need to undergo therapy, speak with professionals who could perhaps jog his memory, bring him back down to earth. Enter Jolly West. The commander of the base hospital ordered a psychiatric evaluation of Shaver, and Dr. West, then the head of psychiatric services at the airbase, would be the man for the job. For the next two weeks, Shaver was under West's supervision, but nothing seemed to work in jogging Shaver's memory, even returning to the scene of the crime. So, West did the only thing he could think of. He injected Shaver with truth serum and put him under hypnosis, which was recorded in three stages for use in trial. But strangely, the middle third was not recorded. When the transcript resumes, it says, Shaver was crying. He has been confronted with all the facts repeatedly. According to testimony, while Shaver was under hypnosis, he confessed to killing the young girl because she'd brought about repressed memories of his cousin who sexually abused him as a child. And on the night of the murders, Shaver was at home drinking when, according to him, a vision of God whispered into his ear to seek out and kill the evil girl. West maintained that Shaver had suffered a bout of temporary insanity, but that he was, as he said, quite sane now. In the courtroom, however, Shaver looked all but normal. One newspaper would say he sat through the strenuous session like a man in a trance. He said nothing, never moving to stretch or smoke, even though he was a known chain smoker. Although Shaver's medical history was well documented and scrutinized by lawyers during the trial, there was no mention of the base hospital where West had been conducting early experiments for the MKUltra program. And in the years before the crime, Schaefer had suffered terrible migraines that were so bad he would dunk his head in bowls of ice water. His condition would grow so bad that the Air Force had recommended him for a two-year experimental program. The doctor who conducted these experiments was not named in court records. On the stand, when pressed on the issue, Jolly West claimed he never got around to seeing if Schaefer was treated in the experimental program. And, after a failed appeal, at age 33, Jimmy Shaver was executed in the electric chair. Lackland officials maintained there is no record of Shaver in their master index of patients. Oddly though, according to the base's archive, all of the patients in 1954 had been maintained. But not all of them. The file for last names beginning with SA through ST had vanished. From the outside looking in, considering everything that has been brought forward in recent years about the MKUltra programs, and Jolly West's involvement in these programs, it's hard to ignore the parallels and outright coincidences. The story of Jimmy Schaefer is a strange and sickening tale, and over the decades have fueled many conspiracy theories and suspicions in the eyes of many people. What appeared to be just the case of a man suffering from some bizarre, temporary bout of insanity that led to the rape and murder of a young girl could be just that, case closed. Or, in the eyes of these theorists, it could be more. Jolly West's involvement in the Jimmy Schaefer case was his first affiliation with a mysterious crime with no apparent motive and a defendant who would, under his supervision, slowly lose his grip on reality. But it wouldn't be his last. Shot. 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 
Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. It really does help. And now through courthouse corridors, jam-packed with newsmen and photographers, comes the man accused of shooting Oswald, Jack Ruby, 52 years old, on trial for his life. Ruby is flanked by officers as he's hustled into the courtroom.